to the Real Rural Women's Leadership podcast series. This project is funded through the Department of Agriculture, Water and Environment. It is led by Care Ballon in St. George, Ballon Shire in southwest Queensland in conjunction with a team of researchers led by Dr. Sarah Casey at the University of the Sunshine Coast. The team includes Dr. Gail Crimmins, Dr. Saskia de Klerk and Dr. Karen Hands alongside Professor Jackie Hewitt from Griffith University. This podcast series is about building women's capacity, empowerment, strategic communication, and business leadership skills. This series is eclectic. We interview community and business leaders, entrepreneurs, academics, communication and media experts, an empowerment and confidence leader, and CEOs, the agitators and the advocates. Our hope is that this series might act as an inspiration and information toolkit for others. You can find more information about our project at www.realruralwomensleadership.com. All episodes contain show notes about the guests with links to their stories. So settle in and enjoy the series as together we chat with these remarkable women. Today on the 16th of March 2022, I'm speaking with Dr. Nelia Hindman Grisk, who's a senior lecturer in intercultural management within the School of Business at UNSW Canberra. Nelia conducts research on multiculturalism, gender, and women's empowerment through higher education. Nelia transitioned from a stay-at-home mum to an academic and will share her journey of progressing her career while raising a family and pursuing postgraduate studies in our conversation. Thank you, Dr. Nelia Heinbin-Risk, for this conversation today. I really appreciate your time and really looking forward to your insights. I might just start by asking maybe a bit of a personal question, but what characteristics or specific skills helped you in your um, professional development and to achieve what you set out to do? What, What would that be? Well, you know, I had more than um, seven years at home with three children without, and I wasn't, I didn't maintain a connection to the labour force. Can you hear me all right? Yes, I can. Yeah, yeah. So, and so when I was 33, I received a re-entry scholarship for women to the Australian National University to do my PhD. So that was one of the big things that kind of turned my career around or and, and I'd already had an undergraduate degree but I got married after my undergraduate degree and then I had three children so I had this sort of period of almost 10 years where I was out of the labor force looking after children full-time so that that re-entry scholarship which was designed for women who'd had more than five years out of the labor force was a key kind of turning point being awarded that scholarship and then when I got that, as I mentioned, I was, was 33 and um, so I went back to university full-time and the scholarship paid for daycare mostly. <laughs> it's so, so expensive. <laughs> I had two in kindergarten and grade two at the time, so I had three children under seven and then, then I had one that I had to pay daycare for and she didn't go full-time she went three days a week or four days I think maximum and that took up more than half the scholarship but that was sort of the key opportunity that came that I guess re-established my my connection back to the labour force and that opportunity to pursue higher education and to get a doctorate. I unfortunately in 10 years at home everything had changed quite dramatically from the previous time that I'd been studying so I was sort of out from about 19 
96 or 1997 till 2005. My um, first day back at the university, I went to the library, the same library that I'd gone to for my undergraduate degree, and I went to the catalogues and I was trying to find journals and I went up to the second level where all the journals used to be and they weren't there and I came back down to the librarian and I said well what happened to all the journals <laughs> I can't find anything what's happened to everything and she said well um actually there are no more physical journals everything's online and you don't have to come to the library to find anything anymore you can just search from your computer desk and I just couldn't believe it I had no idea what a database was I'd never seen a PowerPoint and uh, a rude awakening (laughs) I had to do six months of information literacy courses to catch up on the 10 years I'd missed yeah that's a lot a lot to get your head around without even thinking about content and and where you want to go (laughs) yeah so that that was yeah so then yeah so that was how I kind of got back into things and then yeah five years later I had a PhD and then I was 38 so probably a little bit late to launch a career, but not too late as it turns out. Yeah. No, it's never too late. <laughs> so, yeah, and then I joined the UNSW Canberra when in 2011. So that's 11 years that I've been there. And I, I found with women one thing is that you have to be more adaptable and more flexible. So if I was going to be quite rigid about what discipline, academic discipline, I was going to work in I probably wouldn't have been able to find an academic career niche but and you know the, the particular discipline I had my PhD in was anthropology quite a narrow field not a lot of openings in any university much less one in Canberra and I found one of the issues that women often have is that they they've got kids they're not able to move for work you know that's yeah. one of the challenges that women have so how do you create opportunities without having to move if you've already got your household you already got your kids they're all in school you don't want to sort of up and move people so um and if your partner already has their job so this was sort of one of those challenges that women have so I sort of found that I had to be more flexible in thinking about how I could apply the skills that I learned in my PhD to work in in a related area or in an adjacent field. And that's how I ended up applying to UNSW Canberra to a position in research methodologies. And that was the initial position that I joined the School of Business to to teach. Yeah. Uh, And then from that I grew into other roles and opportunities as they came along and moved into cross-cultural management. And, and then I've now been moving into entrepreneurship, which I've talked to you about and come back to talk to you about that course later as well. So it's, it's about sort of, but I sort of found so whilst a lot of the career advice for men is around, you know, networking to build your opportunities and to kind of have a more linear path upwards in organisations, that doesn't really work for women always in the same way that women need to yeah. kind of be a bit more adaptable and flexible in and maybe their pathways, not this linear sort of direction up, but more, uh, yeah, within and between organisations to try to find opportunities and gaps and loopholes where they can create an opportunity for themselves. 
Yeah, that, that's really important that you mentioned that, you know, first of all, having that opportunity. So making it easier for you to re-enter um, the workforce and then to um, have the skills to know how to navigate the new um, uncertain environment. So you mentioned, you know, to reskill, to almost reinvent what you thought you are going to do, but along the way also to be flexible and, and to really not have a rigid mindset, but rather a growth a mindset around. Yeah. Early on when I joined, you know, they had a mentoring program, you know, for new academics, and I was assigned a male academic, a senior kind of male academic, and I found almost none of his advice worked for me. And I, and I think that that's fairly common, like, you know, it's a, the traditional pathway for academia is went to international conferences and you network with senior and important professors and that would then create opportunities for you to be involved with this or be involved with that. And I found almost none of that worked very well. Yeah, there's a and and then of course now a lot of that traditional academic network working has been disrupted with academic uh, with COVID anyways. And and you know and let alone the sustainability of those international conferences in terms of the flight miles and flying halfway around the world for two days or whatever. But before that, it was already problematic for me. Yeah, so yeah, with the family. Family and leaving, and I'd be having to leave these sort of elaborate lists of mm-hmm. everything that had to happen at home while I was away, all the drop-offs and the pickups and the, all that stuff. And then there's a sort of, you know, I guess the anxiety of leaving children to go overseas and what if something happens to you. And I do remember on one of my, my last overseas work trips, my daughter said to me, oh, Mum, please don't die. Oh. And I just didn't feel that I could do it anymore. Um, yes. But And then the conferences themselves were quite, you know, quite a bit of risk involved with them. Often you'd have session, you'd have the conference dinner late at night and you had to get back to the hotel room. Or this sort of thing, you know, and I often felt that it was a higher level of personal risk for women in those sort of international tribal situation, trying to go to a conference, trying to come, a lot of that after-hours stuff, how do you get yourself to venues and back safely? And I went to this one in Paris and they had a conference dinner in those little cruise boat things that go on the on the Seine, you know, the yes. kind of conference dinner boat, you know. Yeah. And, you know, and it was and it was starting at 7.30 or something like that. And I, yeah. just, I, I didn't expect it to be this really late thing and it, yes. it went up and down. They were waiting for the fireworks or something to, to go off on the Eiffel Tower. It was supposed to be absolutely spectacular, but it finished at midnight. Oh, yes. And then I realised I hadn't figured out how I was going to get back to the hotel room. And then the trains had all stopped oh, and yes. I couldn't see a taxi. There was no mm. taxis and I, and I was absolutely petrified, like, how was I going to get back safely to the hotel room? I hadn't, didn't have anyone. I wasn't travelling with anyone. What was going to be the safe way to get back there? And all I could think about was like my kids. I didn't want to be in a situation where I was walking by myself after midnight in Paris where I didn't know the streets and 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 um, and this a male person from the conference at the table offered to take me back. And I was like, I don't think so. And then luckily there was a, a female a conference participant that happened to be in a hotel not too far from from mine and we were both in the same boat so we walked together and got back all right but it's just that sort of what works for the male career is a 
different whole set of calculations and considerations for women in terms of how do you go about building those international connections and attending those conferences and building that profile safely. Yes. <laughs> yes. And, and, I mean, your research as well, thinking about the role of women, our identity, you focus specifically on um, Lebanese um, women, but it's transferable to, to any woman you know, anyway, because of the restrictions that um, that's around us, but that we also put on ourselves. So sometimes we have to deal with that as well. How would you describe your support system to, to navigate all of that when you started your career? Yeah, so I had, you know, quite a bit of support at home. So both from my husband, but also, yeah. and then I had the scholarship initially that paid for a lot of the childcare, and then from both of my parents. Yeah. So, and then the first time, you know, I started using daycare. That was also a big challenge because, of course, you know, you know what it's like the first time you try to drop them off, they start screaming, and then you think it's going to be terrible, and they're not going to, you know, they're not going to agree to go to daycare, <laughs> and you feel absolutely horrendous and terrible. Yeah. I think my daughter was 20 months old or something like and I dropped her off there the first time and I then I remember I drove to the university and then I rang the daycare centre and she stopped crying as soon as I more or less as soon as I walked out the door but she was putting on this huge big you know that it was going to be the worst thing ever that's guilt of a mother it's terrible (laughs) and of course the other aspect that you're not really taken seriously as a mother in, in in a lot of different contexts you know so it's how do you Get your toe in, get your foot in the door, first challenge. Second challenge, yeah. how do you get taken seriously? Mm-hmm. And it's almost a no-win situation. You know, if you if you launch your career before you have kids, then you have a lot of sexisms there too. Like, oh, if you hire this person, they're going to take maternity leave and they're going to take all this time off or this type of debate. Then if they hire you after you have, after you have kids, well, they, those kids are a big distraction and how are they ever going to get, you know. And so I got, and I initially I remember I had this um, all-male all panel that their idea was that I shouldn't work too hard because I was never really going to have a career anyway. And I was on the women's scholarship, you know. So it's nice that you're here, but, you know, there's no, you, we don't have to read your work in a hurry and you don't have to finish in a hurry really because you're never really going anywhere, that sort of attitude. Yeah. And, and whether you got it directly or implicitly you know that attitude was there so was, and I don't think I really realized how sexist the world was until I came back as a mature age female student yeah and and a mother that there's, the idea is that you're all set done dusted finished yeah. once you're a mother that's it you've got one primary role and that's your only role and society is not really set up for women to do much with themselves beyond just being a mother. There's also just a whole set of obstacles. And, and even with the early childhood system. At the time when I when I went through, you know, that the preschool only went to 1 p.m. Yeah. My local preschool, they didn't have all day preschool. And it was all set, and they didn't have cleaners. It was set up with women, the mums having to clean the toilet block. Oh, luckily that changed <laughs> a little. You pay for it, but <laughs> and, and and I still remember with the primary school. The first time they had the, they they didn't have women being volunteering for free to run the tuck shop, they realised that they weren't going to be able to run the tuck shop. If they were going to have to pay a commercial rate, 
someone to come in and, and do the catering for the tuck shop. They couldn't figure out how to run the tuck shops at the school. So it was all premised on women coming in and doing that work for free. So there was just so many things structurally, and I do feel that Australia is quite far behind on a lot of these areas around how daycare is structured, how early childhood is structured, how workplace is structured in terms of that sort of after-work stuff. And I guess a lot of that's been now quite revolutionised with this two years that we've now spent with the sort of working remote, working online. If you have to nip out at 3 o'clock to get the kids or whatever, it's not such a big drama, but it really was in that old world of work where it was 9 to 5 at the desk work meetings you know put on at 5 p.m or 4 30 and it's like you know if you can't couldn't do the full set of hours at the desk then you were sort of forced to go part-time yeah yeah less flexible yeah less less flexible and if you couldn't do that full you know full day you know hours at the desk in the office you know then there was sort of a challenge that well were you really suitable for working full-time and then of course that means half pay so I had two jobs in which the lack of flexibility was just an absolutely killer. And that's why I felt that academia, even before we had COVID, was a much better, more flexible fit because academia wasn't yeah. um, structured around presenteeism. It was structured yes. around you, you've got to be there for your classes, but otherwise you could be teaching, you could be writing your academic papers late at night or on a Saturday morning and, you you know, and then my whole PhD was done that way. But all the rest of the ac- academic career was more about outputs than it was presenteeism. Yeah. And I had my two other roles before I joined ADFA that were both an absolute nightmare and it made me realise a regular office job was never going to work for me between living remote because I live on a property outside of the capital city that's more than 30 minutes. So between the living remote and managing three children, school-aged children, I felt that a regular office job was just going to be an absolute nightmare. I I had one in a government agency. They had taken presenteeism to an absolutely extreme extent. So they, you logged in, you got to your desk in the morning, you had to log on, and they had a a clicking timer in the top right hand side of the screen that clicked that ticked back from seven hours and twenty five minutes from when you logged on, and you had to get this seven hours and twenty five minutes done each day or a red bar came across the de- the the computer screen if you didn't get the full 7 hours and 25 minutes and then they it accumulated your red in your in the red you know accumulation until if you got 10 hours behind from a number of accumulated days in which you got less than 7 hours and 25 minutes done you had to buy out the hours and take a pay cut and it's I, crazy. Absolutely, <laughs> I absolutely hated it. I just, I just sort of felt like my whole life was ticking backwards from the second I. Oh, you just, no. Yeah, you log on in the morning and then you're just trying to get this seven hours and 25 minutes done. It was absolutely mind deadening, oh, <laughs> horrendous. And, and all it does, all that presenteeism did, is it encouraged people to come in, log onto their computer so the clock's ticking, and then go to the coffee shop and buy a coffee. Not to be more productive, but how to fill that time up. Yeah. Yeah, it's uh, definitely not the best way to do it. <laughs> and your whole government agency is running that way. And then, you know, I had this friend, you know, she, she had a, she'd gone back to work in the public service after an extended period out of the labour force. And, you know, she was then given the task of spying on all of her other colleagues to see how and calculating their swipe cards how many had gone to their desk logged on and then gone to the exit 
to go out for a smoker or a coffee and then they <laughs> and then they added up all the hours for the people who'd gone out the exit and gave them these deficit sheets. Uh-huh. And you know, but this this sort of you know, this old world thinking about how you improve productivity by forcing people to do time at their desk. Mm-hmm. It, it doesn't work for anybody, much less work for women that have a lot to juggle in, yes. um, in their careers and in their households and, in, and, and commutes and all that stuff. So I do think if I, some positivities come out of all this COVID, it's really yeah. shaken up how organisations think about how they can retain their their staff and how they can motivate their staff and how and the ways in which staff can work to to get their outputs done and that's uh, I think a potential potentially really positive for women that live in particularly in, in regional and remote Australia yeah uh, that that is sort of a working from home and working in flexible sorts of ways and, and you know a lot of organizations now will consider having staff person that's in St George even if their head office is in Melbourne yeah yeah that's true as long as the infrastructure is there infrastructure is your big issue I recently acquired a Starlink satellite dish on our roof which took our internet from being six megabits per second download on a very good day and quite often only one megabit per second download up to 200 megabits per second that's amazing. And like about 30 or 40 upload, which meant that yeah. you know, large you know, recorded file sizes and things like that could now be uploaded from, which used to be impossible from here. So that is um, another area. I mean, the infrastructure has been very behind in Australia and trying to wait for Telstra to do something is just impossible. And then in came Bormuir, the Elon Musk satellites from the international market and just quite transformed. I mean, our whole yeah. road went to the Starlink in just a matter of a couple of months. That's great. And then I don't keep the landline phone service because it was constantly down, the copper wires. They were never bringing MBN to this neighbourhood and I think a lot of people in rural Australia suffer from that. They'll do the country towns mm. but they don't do the surrounding properties. Okay. So in terms of how it is for New South Wales, all the country towns out from Canberra have NBN, like Hall and Harden and Yass, but not the properties. And so this has kind of bypassed all of that and then we got rid of the landline for the phone and went to a VoIP, like a voice over internet service provider and just apported our landline number with the VoIP service. So then we don't have any copper coming to the house anymore and that was really that improved our our service quite considerably and all of that makes it more possible to work from home. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I, I agree with you. These have been a major shift and with um, that a lot of people that could see gaps that they could fill with new in- innovations and, and new better ways of doing things as well. When you think about the, the impact of adapting and being flexible and what's what's some of the things that you would say, this is my tips to someone not having to go through all of that? What, what would I say to someone to help them navigate it maybe better or faster? I think it's, it's easier to continuously learn technology mm-hmm. incrementally all the time than to have a major gap and to have to learn it back, having missed, you know, nine or ten years like I did. So what I say to a lot of, you know, to say to, to women is to keep one hand in. Don't, don't 
uh, let yourself completely drift away from that connection. I was someone who already had some degree of computer literacy and kept a computer in the house for the nine yeah. years that I wasn't working, but I'd only just get on to check. And we literally had like dial-up internet. It was terrible, but we just, <laughs> I'd check my email once a week. I'd do a Christmas newsletter that I'd email yeah. out to everyone or something like that. And that was enough disconnection to have really had a considerable about it technology to have to learn and you don't when you're using technology all the time in your work every day of the week you don't notice all the new new platforms yeah. and technologies that you're learning constantly but when yeah. you have to if you let that go for two years three years four years five years and try to learn that all in a big chunk it's an incredible amount it, it can become a hurdle that can be insurmountable and women just tend to lose confidence yeah and, and it's terrible for you and it's terrible for your kids. I think if you, if, as a mum, you feel that you don't have the confidence to, to read their work or understand what they're learning at school. Or, so I think that maintaining that kind of connection is really important. Yeah, to stay up to date, like you said. Otherwise, it's so difficult to close that gap when you yes. need to. Yeah. Yeah, and one generation to another, they grow up with it, the kids. So. They're all digital natives, yeah. <laughs> yes. Yeah, that's true. When you, when you think about specifically women that want to start like a higher degree or some of the women that you've supervised, what's some of the things that you think, oh, you know, this is the skills that they need? I've supervised mostly women, but they've, in addition to being women that almost all of them have had children. So I, I like to supervise women in, in those situations to provide opportunities and because yeah. I, I didn't have that opportunity to be supervised but a female supervisor. I had all male supervisors and I didn't feel that, they, as I said, that they had much kind of sympathy or, you know, respect for what that involved for me to come back at that age and do what I was trying to do. So just that there, to be able to be a female supervisor that understands the juggling and to 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 be flexible about what what it is that the students need and and be able to to work around you know the school holidays and the and not schedule things at three pm because they've got to pick kids up and that sort of thing. But on top of that, almost all of the students that I've supervised have English as a second language and they've come here as international students, so they have additional challenges around visas, around and around languages language and writing and so there there were some initial learning curves you know they were they the very brightest from their countries to got a scholarship to come here our standard phd program didn't factor in the additional time that international students just need for that first six months to a year really to just get their head hand, head around our systems and processes and you know you know i had one student you know asked to do a literature review and she thought that that was just literally cutting and pasting chunks of different people's writings and putting it together and didn't realize that you can't do that that you need to paraphrase you can you can look at all those people's writings but you need to put it all into your own into your own into your own words and you know hadn't seen you know turn it in before so I put her literature review into the turn it in and I showed her and she probably couldn't believe it <laughs> she couldn't believe it 40 percent I was cut and paste. She said, oh, but I thought that they had their words were better than mine. Yeah. So, so it's uh, confidence thing. 
Yes, and and there just there's some additional um, stages of being shown how to do things. If you don't come from a, a system, an academic system, that you're really you have to put things in your own words, and you haven't seen that technology with the Turnitin, and it will show you. So I just got her to to write and rewrite and resubmit to Turnitin, so she could see how she can put things into her own words without it being plagiarism. You know, so she has a PhD now. But you know. I've done a lot of saving people, I suppose, maybe more than I should have. But I had, you know, I felt that I wanted to make sure that I would never be like the sort of supervisors that I experienced doing my own PhD. And I still think, you know, I wouldn't have a PhD if it wasn't for my father, who was sort of academic on the side that kind of read everything. Because, you know, I just find that why I found that the male academics that I had contact with were just so self-driven, almost narcissistic. You know, they just were just completely ego-driven. Yeah. Just if it, if it wasn't going to get them ahead to read your piece of drivel, they just weren't going to do it, you know. And, you know, I sort of think and I think about the sort of writing that I've had to to work with, with and I've done seven PhDs now, I think about the sort of, writing that I was working with and helping students to improve their writing, you know, I sort of think, well, if I could have had one student that wrote like I did and I couldn't even get my supervisors to read my work. I had one, he had the whole draft thesis and he let it sit on his desk for six months because he was too busy with himself and how important he was and the things that he had to do. If it wasn't going to get him ahead, why should he have to read my work? This sort of attitude that men have can be quite mercenary. Yeah, you you've taken on the role to be a role model, Mm -hmm. but also to right some of the wrongs, I guess. Mm -hmm. And you also mentioned your your father as a mentor. Do you Mm -hmm. have any other mentors that really stand out that Mm -hmm. supported you on your journey? Yeah, I had I had one female professor, and she wasn't my direct supervisor, and she was in a leadership position at the university that I was in, and she always gave me career advice from the side. Uh, and I would try to follow, you know, what she what she was recommending. And sometimes it would, you know, actually my my actual male supervisors were quite threatened by the sort of advice that I go follow her advice. She'd say, you know, publish your publish your chapters as you write them. So I did, and I got one published. Then I told my supervisor, "You what? You got it published? We thought it was dribble. We wouldn't even read it." <laughs> yeah. Oh. Yeah, that was just terrible. So, yeah, so I had her on the side and 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 I just needed someone to 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 give me a good reference as well. Yeah. So, I, at one point one of the supervisors that I had, the first academic position I applied for, of course I didn't get it. I hadn't didn't have my PhD yet, but it was the first one I applied to towards the third year of my PhD. Yeah. I asked them to be a supervisor and they said no. I mean, not oh. to be a supervisor, but a reference. A reference, yes. Yeah. So that was my first experience about this networking business, you know. Like they weren't going to, they were my supervisors, but they weren't going to be supportive and they weren't going to be referees. Luckily, it was for a position I didn't have a chance on, but I found out something about them. Yes. And I never asked them ever again for anything. Yeah. So you, you mentioned support, you know, as, as part of your relationship with um, your students as part Mm. of what you wanted or expected as part of your journey in Mm. growing and and Mm. getting through your career. How how would you describe these um, support systems Um, or, you know, some of the things that you would like to see in this support? Yeah, so 
women helping women is one of the kind of key things. So that that particular uh, professor that wasn't a direct supervisor to me, her being prepared to provide good solid references helped me to get an actual academic position. Yeah. yeah. So that is one of the things. So I do think that women need to help each other. Otherwise, the system just tends to conspire against. You know. <laughs> That's yeah. one of one of the things, and so, and then getting getting the experience is can be difficult if you're not given the opportunities. You know, it's like when you look at a, a woman a woman's CV and you look at a man's CV, and you know, there might be all these kind of holes and gaps and periods out of the labour force, and or you haven't kind of you know, you know, you haven't done maybe ticked as many of the boxes and done as many. As many of the things and how do you then get the opportunity to try something if you've not got the experience and you kind of get stuck in this thing where you just can't get started and yeah. so you need someone to somehow to kind of short circuit that gap or provide that opportunity or to recommend or to you know this is the kind of thing because like women's careers just don't look like men's careers it's the thing and and the whole idea of a career and how it's structured and what it's supposed to be What's supposed to look like is on a male norm. That is put there as the norm. And then the woman's career looks like that, but like Swiss cheese. <laughs> like that example is good. <laughs> so it's how do you work around that? You need to have some shortcuts or someone who's just going to kind of, you know, and, and it's not just it's, it's having some key female assistants but I have to say that I had a couple of visionary men that were prepared to give me some help yes and take a chance so one was my father you know that yeah and and the other was the um professor that hired me at my current job you know he he decided to take a chance yeah and he he gave me that opportunity and then he fairly quickly after I'd been there, I'd only been there for six months or a year and he put me into a coordinator role and I'd never done that before. Yeah. So he, he challenged you and created these opportunities for you to fill those gaps in the Swiss cheese. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So so those some so yeah, those are just some of the kind of um, experiences that I've had. And then you've got to pass it on and correct. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's a very important message and that's part of your career. You feel very strongly about the fact that you know what you receive you need to share as well and pass it on to the next generation. And I think that's really, you know, a, a very important aspect for you mm. in terms of overcoming what you had to face in in terms of the challenges. How do you personally deal with that very challenging situation? So uh, another big obstacle is that I found that I haven't been able to get funding from traditional sources. And yeah. a, a part, of, part, of, part of the problem there is academia in general. The, the, the funding pools got smaller and smaller. Yeah. Uh, and, and if you're not in a top-tier university or, you know, group of aid or, and in a, you know, then your chance because so much just the points are just for the research environment. You know, they're not actually measuring the quality of the of the proposal. They met is who you are, where you're writing from, and whether you've had a grant before. Now, that's a whole problem that if you haven't had a grant before, then you're not <laughs> going to get the next grant. But 
and and if somebody who's had them isn't prepared to sign you on to theirs for you to get a track record, then you just can't break through sometimes. And I've yeah. managed to be able to go achieve what I've achieved without ever getting a major external. But what I found was if with small pools of money, um, not I didn't have the I didn't ever win the lotto. Okay, and I think applying for academic grants is more or less the lotto. And I don't yeah. gamble. <laughs> so I went for the sure bets. Yes. The, the, sure, the sure bets was having a small school, a small pool sometimes of just internal funds and then I would use that to do some research that I could achieve and then I often would use that to hire a research assistant and then I could yes. get the interviews and, you know, it wasn't prestigious money but it was money. Yeah. That I could do and I didn't always just use it on travel. Yes. Sometimes I would use it to actually hire someone to do the interviews or to do the transcription or to the, you know. And I was then able to kind of build up some research and then I was able to get some publications. And with the publications, it was a similar story to the grants. Mm. You know, to get the most prestigious publications in the most prestigious locations has some of the characteristics of grants. It's not so much what you wrote. It's who wrote it and which institution are you from and have you, what is your brand? So I often, I I started from where I could start from. I started with chapters and I would go to conferences and I'd present in a panel and then everyone from the panel would be invited to do a chapter in a book. And I did a few of those and I was told they weren't worth very much. But in the end, I found that I had more citations from the so-called chapters that weren't worth very much. (laughs) (laughs) And it started building my Google citations and then eventually the university decided they'd want us to include our Google citation. I was already doing that anyways because I decided that had a, a bigger international currency anyways than SNP or whatever the latest me- metric measurement system yeah. was. And then thing is, and that built my networks, my academic yes. networks. And eventually you need them if you want to apply for a promotion because you need yeah. a referee and they have to be an international one. Yes. And uh, so if you don't cooperate on their books or cooperate on the conference paper, then you're not going to get the referee. So as you can't just play exactly the game for just that you're just going to go for the most yeah. prestigious thing. So you have to start from somewhere. And yeah. so that's what I often found I had to do. And, and then, yeah, often, I often found that you know, I had to resubmit things and write them over and over again and all that sort of thing. And sometimes you just don't think you ever want to see that piece of writing ever, ever, ever again. Because you had to <laughs> resubmit it four times to four different journals. Eventually, eventually it gets up. So the, some of it has just been perseverance. Some of it is just not been doing the following the prescription of what you're supposed to do to build yeah. the careers. It's going where the door opens, using the funds that you have access to, doing the research project is doable. Yeah. Uh, and choosing outlets that you can that you can get into and that you can build collegial relationships. Find your own way of doing things. Yeah, you just can't follow the conventional advice on building a career when you're starting from nowhere. Yeah. Starting from nowhere, starting at the bottom, you know, you know, even even the PhD scholarship, you know, like I had to I had tried in my um mid twenties to get a, a PhD scholarship and, you know, you know, I got 84 out of 85 for my honours. 
you know, 1% of an, a first-class honours and it was 1% political, of course. And uh, it took me 15 years to get a PhD scholarship. Now, I could have just given up and given up forever and yeah. I almost did because, you know, without the scholarship, it didn't have the confidence. You didn't feel like you were good enough. Yeah to do it when everyone's got a scholarship and you don't have one. They were quite happy just to let me come and study for nothing. (laughs) Of course. (laughs) (laughs) But then I got that re-entry scholarship for women when I was 33 and I was quite determined the second time around. I knew it was a second chance and it was the final chance. And no matter, you know, I had the supervisor that wouldn't read my work and I had some discouragement and that and various things, but I knew this is it. I either just push through this time or it's just it's now or it's never. Yeah. And so I did. And when you're really determined and, you know, women with kids often, you know, you haven't, you're juggling so much, you're very focused on the time that you have to do something when they're at school and they're at daycare and you've got to kind of really just go for it. And often when you have an unlimited time frontier in front of you, and I looked at other students that were 10 years younger than me and that weren't juggling, I was juggling, and they'd just still be sitting at their desk on a Friday night at 10 p.m. Yeah. And they just weren't focused, you know, and I had till four and that was it. I had to go and go pick up, you know, kids from daycare and go home do dinner and all the rest of it, and I just had to just really focus down what I needed to get done in the four hours. And I was paying, I was using my whole scholarship just to have four hours to sit at the desk. So, yeah. and it was so you had laundry. to make it work. <laughs> I had to. I had to make the most of, the, of that. So I guess never underestimate what can be done. And, and then, yeah, conventional advice, you know, that you do something at this age and you then you go to your next position and you do, do, do you know, this sort of conventional kind of advice about how you build a career and the order in which you do it and how you get develop those references, referees and how you get published and you know none of that worked for me because women are unconventional and so conventional advice doesn't work (laughs) (laughs) same with the book I'll just talk about that one too while I'm at it because the book now your conventional advice for the academic book is that you take seven years to write it and you shop it around and you start with the very, very best and you work your way down. Just start with Harvard University Press, proposal to Harvard, and you work, and if they knock you back, then you go Princeton. Princeton University Press knocks you back, then you maybe, you know, consider Columbia. Ivy League, you know, and you're never going to get tenure, you know, this particularly, you know, American advice, but it's a version of it applies in Australia. Yeah. So unless it's a prestigious university press, Mm-hmm. And, you know, and you've taken seven years to rewrite your PhD thesis, forget it. It'll get you yeah. nowhere. You'll never get that academic position. And, you know, and you've got to spend seven years trying. Well, sorry, I was 38 when I got my PhD. I was not going to spend seven years trying to get into Harvard with a, with a book proposal. So I took the mid-level, mid-to-bottom-level yeah. publisher that wasn't the best most prestigious university press and it wasn't the absolute bottom academic press and they had invited me to submit a proposal. Now, was that a good idea or was that a bad idea? Well, I got my first job. Yeah. 
a year after my PhD because I had that book contract. Yeah. Now, it wasn't the most prestigious, as I said. It wasn't, you know, Ivy League University Press and it was like... <laughs> wasn't any of those things. But it yeah. got me that job. If I'd waited seven years, I was 39 when I got that job. Mm. I waited seven years to get the prestigious university. I would have been yeah. like, you know, 47 <laughs> and still never got that first job. You know, you've got a very narrow window after you get the big qualification yeah. to convert it, to get that yeah. off and then they take the next graduates. Once five years out from your PhD, if you haven't managed to kind of get yourself in somewhere you go kind of a, a period in which you get a big bump from the qualification and you need to move yeah and take that opportunity and if you just sit and wait and wait for the most prestigious and best thing or whatever you know you're just gonna maybe even miss the boat altogether so so yeah. I took the thing that was at a heart that thing that where the door opened it wasn't the most prestigious it wasn't the worst it got me in the door now I did have subsequent bosses that said some really terrible things to me about that book I got told by one boss that, you know, it was a yoke around my neck or nothing about what I wrote. Maybe that was all she wrote, but no, it wasn't that. It was because it wasn't with the prestigious enough publisher. Therefore, it was a yoke around my neck and therefore that's why I wasn't going to be promoted and I wasn't going to be, I wasn't going to be. Well, I got promoted and I published another book somewhere else. So... (laughs) You found a way around all of those obstacles that they see in the road. So that's great. Yes. Mm-hmm. Still haven't made it to Harvard, but oh well. <laughs> you know, there's better things in life than just to aim for Harvard. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, it's it's great to listen to you because um, I think your resilience and, and just, you know, to find your own way and not to give up on yourself basically is, is that's one of the main things that I admire about you. When when you talk about inspiring women, if you had to describe women leaders, what's some of the inspiring characteristics? Leading with empathy and being very, very competent. Mm-hmm. There's often you're kind of having to work against assumptions that women somehow lack numeracy skills or lack financial competence or lack you know, there's sort of a there's sort of idea that women lack competence. Yes. In in a leadership position. So it's 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 demonstrating competence, but also emotional intelligence that often is is lacking in men, in, in male, I think. So and knowing and, and knowing the kinds of struggles perhaps that other staff around you, if you're in a leadership position and you've got that opportunity to create those opportunities or open those doors, I think it's really important to do it and and really kind of challenging those kind of unconscious bias, you know, where you only help people that are like you, which is one of the things that women are always working against in a system that where leadership's always been occupied by men and then they want to hire people and promote people that are like them. You know, and that goes yeah. back to that conventional idea about what a competent person and a successful career looks like. They will have followed this step and that step and that step and that step all in a conventional trajectory and that, therefore, is what the capable person and the successful person should look like. But for women, because all the things that we've talked about, our careers are more like Swiss cheese, we didn't follow the conventional pathway. You can't look for someone that's like you to to promote. You've got to accept other different kinds of trajectories. And so it's sort of 
So if you find yourself in a leadership position, it's not just, I suppose, promoting people that are like you. The other thing I really dislike is sort of nepotism or clicks or creating opportunities for some and leaving other people just to sit outside the tent, you know, and languish, try to make sure that things are a bit equally distributed. Um, so those, those are things that, that, that I think about. Being kind, you know. What good is it? What good does it do the world? To be unkind. Yeah. To make people suffer. You know? That's the yeah. point. Yeah, I agree with you. There's so many words that you use to describe and, you know, what you would expect in good leaders, and whether it's female or male, but especially some of those, I think it's overlooked as strong traits or skills. Like you mentioned, emotional intelligence and empathy. That's seen more on the softer side. And, and you mentioned stereotypes. We think that to be a leader, you need to be strong, but that that's not necessarily um, the same as being, you know, unse- or not sensitive or uncaring. So I think it's really important words that you use to describe it. Mm. Thank you, Nelia. Thank you for your time today. Any last um, comments or questions that you have? Well, you know, I think for women on in regional and rural, I think, you know, it's in a way, some of the technology changes that we've had in the last few years is going to create more opportunities. You're not sort of restricted to your local country town for yeah. possible off-farm employment. It's that maybe that type of complete transformation of remote working and working from home might create opportunities. So I know that that sort of um, tyranny of distance for yeah. remote and regional Australia was a major barrier for women. And, and, you know, a source of sort of isolation and kind of the challenges women have living in very remote parts of Australia. So I think that that sort of opportunity that that, that technology can bring is, is, a, is a potential plus for women's employment. Yeah. Mm. yeah. I, I, I think what you mentioned in terms of the connection, the opportunities, but also, you know, even reaching out and having that sense of community online is probably possible now that there's a bit more of a, people are more comfortable in, in using technology mixed with a lot of other things. You know, it might not be a replacement, but it can be in some cases just to add to what you've got already. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you again for your time. Thank you so much for listening to the Real Rural Women's Leadership podcast series. If you enjoyed today's episode, we'd be delighted if you would take a couple of minutes to rate and review our podcast on your chosen listening platform. If you'd like to learn more about this series or get in touch with us, we'd love to hear from you. You can do so via our website at www.realruralwomensleadership.com, where you'll also find links to our Facebook, Twitter and Instagram accounts. Thanks again for listening.